Hello, Internet. Welcome to episode 48, part two of the Assorted Calibers podcast, the second minute podcast. There's a little bit for everyone. I'm Weird Beard, and I have to apologize for this episode essentially being a week late. I, in simple terms, without going too long, Aaron and I recorded the entirety of this show, or what will be this show, and then, as I was saying goodnight to Aaron, I looked down at the recorder and saw that as I spoke, the bars weren't moving, because just before the show, I had been recording off of YouTube uh, for a future weird audio fisk, and I turn off my mic so that I can walk around and do stuff while I'm watching the video, and I don't need to worry about me coughing, and I don't have to worry about downloading an entire extra track. And I forgot to turn it back on, and I only noticed this after we'd been recording for over two hours. So, yeah, we did a mag dump. And, uh, and, uh, now we're back at it. So, uh, hi Aaron. Uh, there's, we're going to be listening to some stuff for the second time. How are you doing? I feel old. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm tired all the time. I have to take naps in the afternoon in order to keep up and my back aches. You know, I thought I had like about four more years before my body started to break down. <laughs> to be fair, you just like lumped on double duty and you're expecting to just like be like, oh, yeah, no, I'm helping out mom. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm walking the dogs. I'm doing extra work. And now, nah, no problem whatsoever. Just just rain off a duck's back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's certainly what's causing it. But wow, I just I, I, I feel old. And I don't like that feeling. And I don't know how people older than I am cope with this. Uh, I, I hope that we're able to get back to normal soon. Mm. How's she doing, by the way? Uh, well, Mom is doing a lot better. She has graduated from her walker and now is on a cane. Mm -hmm. And she has actually started taking some walks with us in the evening. I'm, I'm still walking the dogs, but she's sort of trailing behind because uh, the physical therapist says that motion, that movement is good. The, the, the phrase is, motion is lotion. Yes. And so, uh, you know, she comes along and then I outpace her and then we double back or wait for her, things like that. She's doing a lot better. And uh, I hope she continues to do better because in about two weeks, I will be flying up to Washington, D.C. to appear in the second annual Second Amendment Day of the University of Mary Washington. I did it last year. I've been invited back. I'll be doing it again. And so I'll be gone for a couple of days. And if she's not better, then I guess stuff just doesn't get done. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've had this planned for months. I've spent money on the tickets. It's, yeah, I'm going. So, and then, hey, in uh, about two weeks after that, or maybe less, is NRA. Yes, it is. Isn't NRA like, oh, it's the 27th through the 28th, right? Mm -hmm. 26, 27, 28? Yep. Oh, yeah. So so that's like a week and a half after that. Yeah. <laughs> April is a busy month. It is a busy month, but a fun one. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited about you going back up to do the uh, the, the, the university thing. That was that was so that was so cool last year. It it was. Um I'm not really sure why you say that because you didn't actually see the speech. They didn't record it. So 
I, but I heard all about it. So, okay. And I, and I met your, uh, your friend. What was her name again? Natalie, Natalie Johns. She is so awesome. She is so high up that you, you cannot see the pedestal you're, she is sitting upon because of the clouds. <laughs> she is a sweet young lady and she's graduating this year. She actually sent me a graduation announcement, which I was flattered to receive. I told her I couldn't possibly attend and she said she knew, but she wanted to send it to me anyway because I had been a very important part of her college career and so she wanted to recognize that and i just oh thank you so much so th that was wonderful and it makes me wonder if there's even going to be a second amendment day next year because she has been just the driving force behind the firearms club at the university of mary washington which is a very liberal school mm -hmm. and uh th they have had a club for at least the past two years and i don't know if she has stocked it well enough that it will continue to thrive without her or if it just required her her drive her motivation we're going to see but uh this young lady just i'm going to brag on her for a little bit she could easily have a job in the nra i mean her father runs the shooting range in fairfax she has worked as an intern for i don't know under whom but she's worked at the nra for several years when she graduates college, she could just get a job with them pretty much the day after and not have to worry about it. But as much as she enjoys working there and doing firearms advocacy, she wants to do something else. She wants to be a forensic psychologist. And I think it takes a, a lot of courage to pass up a sure thing in order to do what she is really drawn to do. And I'm just, I'm very proud of her for that. Yeah, that's amazing. And the whole field of forensics is absolutely amazing. I mean, I've got a, a close friend who's a, a forensic chemist and uh, my wife actually was very interested in going into the forensics field, but it turned out that the pharmaceutical industry was really more of her calling, but she holds, she still holds a torch for that. It's her, her idea as being of, of being a forensic chemist is very much like mine with being a private detective. Oh, okay. It's the one that got away. <laughs> so anything new in your life or are you just getting things set up so that you can go to NRA at the end of the month? Uh, yeah, that's mostly it. And it's the, the weather's starting to turn nice. So I was actually doing some yard work. Uh, I was I actually, I, I was doing yard work with my daughter and uh, we'd went out early earlier that day and I was like, oh, it's going to be it's, it was actually warm the last couple of days and today was cool. So I said, yeah, just throw on a light jacket and you'll be fine. And she was cold. I was cold. So I'm like, all right, we're going out to yard work. Let's we'll we'll be wearing work gloves so we don't need gloves, but let's put on hats. And she's, she opened up my hat drawer and I was reaching for my uh, University of Maine beanie that, uh, that I frequently wear. And she goes, no, 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 let me pick out the hat. And first she handed me my, uh, a wool fedora and I'm like, no, I'm not wearing that doing yard work. And then she handed me my Jane Cobb hat and I went, yep, yep, I'll wear that. <laughs> and so I was wearing that and a, a, a brown medium weight coat because of course I did. <laughs> 
and uh and then and then we walked into town because she has a uh a, a class at a uh, at an art studio and uh i walked past many people who knew me and not a single person asked there was not a not a nod of recognition or a why the hell are you wearing that stupid hat <laughs> but i was a man who walks down the street with that hat and doesn't fear a damn thing <laughs> so they just looked at you and went yeah that's the kind of guy who would wear that yeah, they know me. So, yeah, the idea of me wearing a completely goofy hat, that seemed well. Plus, I was walking with my daughter, and uh, it's <laughs> she She wears frequently wears goofy outfits. She, she likes to wear mismatched socks. When her mom's not around, she's got a pair of shoes that are made by the same maker, and I said they're close enough uh, that uh, she'll wear mismatched shoes at times. At some point in time, we'll just do the do the right thing and buy her two identical pairs of shoes in different colors so she can mix them up. <laughs> well, I, I I can't find it uh right this moment, but there is a recent picture of the various surviving Apollo program astronauts, and I don't know if you've seen this. And there's one of I I think it's Buzz Aldrin. But it might be Neil Armstrong, but I'm pretty sure it's Buzz. Um, and he is he's sitting on a chair, and he's sitting in the way that, that his legs are kind of up, and you can see his socks. And he's wearing a casual suit, but not only are his socks completely bright in color, but they are different colors. Like I, you know, One is a red, and the other is like a, I don't know, blue and orange or whatever. And it's just, wow. Okay, this man has no fear. Yep. I mean, these guys were all these guys were all like fighter pilots. So yeah, no. <laughs> Going into outer space. Yeah, what's next? What else you got? <laughs> yeah, we're just gonna sit on however many tons of incredibly flammable material, and we're gonna set it on fire, and we're gonna ride it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! There it is. There it is. Ha ha! I win. Oh, okay. I hadn't seen one this close before. It, it's their American flag socks. And so one is uh, the stars and the other is the stripes. There you go. Take a look at that beauty. Oh, yeah. And, and so everyone else is wearing tuxedos and he's wearing some sort of silvery suit. Yep. And, and just the really bright socks and just. <laughs> you're what's, gonna have to bleep this out but i mean he's just sitting there zero fucks given yep oh okay so i'm reading the article it, it's a rocket ship pattern suit there, there are worse patterns she could emulate yes oh i've got no problem with it especially i like the fact that i just say go get dressed and it happens it was bad when it was one of those like daddy has to dress a child uh did didn't do well when i was playing with my female friends they're like let's play dolls well you know what i'm bored so yeah i'll play i'm all green lights here i'm like this is boring i don't want to do this anymore dressing a child was 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 never something that amused me whatsoever and cute outfits don't amuse me but seeing my child coming up with the ensembles that she came up with i'm like i i like what you did there (laughs) you express yourself girl so uh, let's uh, let's dive into it. Uh, so, Aaron, you've always said that you hate hearing us talk just about. All right, here's what's bad happened. Here's another bad news. Oh, uh, you know, here's the evening news. Here's who died. <laughs> 
here's another court loss. Here's another gun control law passed. Here's another mass shooting. Yeah. So let's just do just a rundown of uh, of of some of the wins that we've got on the board. All right. So starting in local news. Here in Florida, there has been a relaxation of a law. So way back in our first episode, I talked about the results of the Marjorie Stoneman, there were other words to this law, but you know what I'm talking about, thing that was passed. And uh, I specifically harped on the Coach Aaron Feiss school guardian program where they had made all sorts of ridiculous rules for it, where they sort of allowed people to be armed, but they specifically did not allow armed teachers. Uh, pretty much anyone else, such as a, an administrator, a librarian, a nurse, anyone who worked in ROTC, but not an actual teacher who taught classes because there was some pearl clutching involved in, well, if the teacher has a gun, then... They might disagree with my student and they might pull out that gun and shoot him. And you know, we all know that's garbage because, you know, if you have a teacher who's going to shoot a student over a disagreement, then they're going to bring their gun in illegally and then commit illegal murder. Mm -hmm. Or they're going to run them over in the student parking lot. I mean, there's right. just any number of crazy stuff that would be like an everyday news item, if not on the national news, on your local news, because if it's happening nationally at this rate, then yeah, no, it's not going to happen. We just right. don't have this stuff happening. But uh, that has since been amended. And I think part of that is due to the new governor, but also there was a poll taken and it was felt by a lot of Floridians that, that they wanted teachers to at least have the option to be armed and so the good news is now anyone who works in a school can conceivably carry within the school uh the bad news to that is they've tacked on another 12 hours of training before it was 132 hours which is way more than police officers get in police academy and now they added uh an additional 12 so now it's a total of 144 hours and I don't know where any teacher is going to get that level of training. I don't know who offers it. But, hey, it is uh, an incremental shifting over the Overton window. And maybe we can get some of those requirements reduced. So it is at least a baby step in the right direction. And hopefully more will follow. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of good arguments to be made on it. Again, there are so many states that have constitutional carry. I mean, Florida itself for its concealed carry has what could be referred to as why bother level of training required. I know that, you know, my concealed carry class that I took in, in Florida was just an absolute joke. It was barely anything. And again, Florida is like one of the most well-armed states. I mean, you've got like, does Florida have a record with uh, with with concealed weapon issuings? I know that there's a lot of talk of just how many you guys have. Oh, you mean if we have more concealed carriers than anyone else? Yes. I I actually don't know that. Um, I'm not really sure where I would begin to look. I I think I'm not certain, but I think we were the first state to go shell issue in 1987. Yeah. And I think we kicked it off, which is how we got named the Gunshine State. 
but I actually don't know. I, I can Google it and see if I can get an answer. But either way, uh, it's a big state. It's a very high populous state. It's a shell issue state. And as a general rule, Floridians like their concealed carry permits. And so there's a whole lot of people carrying around guns. And if you read the news, there's a whole lot of people who have the permit and actually do carry their guns. And I know that there's some talk within uh, with, within our ranks on the, yes, people get the permit just to have the option and often don't do what uh, what I certainly do, what many of us do, which is the, yes, I you know, get up in the morning, I put on my pants, and then I put a gun in said pants. Hey, I actually have an answer to your question. Yes. So, as of the end of February of this year, just the concealed weapon uh, permit is nearly 2 million, mm-hmm. or 1,958,652. There's actually a really nice breakdown by type. And I'll drop the link here for you, and we can put that in our show notes. But uh, the, the vast majority are private citizens. But the total number of licenses, including security officers, private investigators, uh, recovery agents, circuit and county judges, things like that, is 2,145,161. I don't know how that measures to other states. Yep. Either way, it's a lot of people. And again, you read about people preventing crime in the news in florida because of course also florida a gun-friendly state they're also not going to bury the lead on if somebody ends up producing a firearm to scare off an attacker and there is very little problem with it there's a couple of incidents but as a general rule nope people that are using their guns are using it justifiably and the people that are doing bad stuff as a general rule don't have permits probably aren't legally owning the guns anyway so an interesting factoid as of 2018 the florida population was 21.3 million so we've got close to 10 percent of our population with a concealed carry license that's awesome and again the sky is not falling the street is not not running red with blood people are not getting shot over parking spaces people aren't shooting each other over disagreements Especially, I mean, Florida, my goodness, it's a purple state. There's super duper conservatives living right next door to super duper liberals and they ain't blasting away at each other. So the idea that you need a damn associate's degree in concealed carry to just simply do on school grounds what you would otherwise do outside of school grounds is absolutely ridiculous. But again, anything that moves the ball up the court. Mm-hmm. So. We also got a uh, a very nice uh, court ruling on uh, bump stocks. A Utah court issued a temporary stay in the pending federal uh, ban on bump stocks. It's it's just a good statement is that believes that the the ATF is acting reckless in their issuing of a, a ban on bump stocks and the fact that this is something that would in fact need legislation because. Again, the whole nature behind this ban is that they're declaring bump stocks machine guns and and so therefore they are not legal and need to be destroyed and can't be registered because of the Hughes Amendment. So therefore, yep, you got to destroy them, got to turn them in or you could be arrested for them, except for there is a definition of machine guns and bump stocks specifically do not meet them. Per the judgment of the ATF, the ATF has agreed. That's the reason why there are so damn many of them out there. And 
So now to suddenly say that, oh, these things that are very specifically not machine guns are now going to be treated as machine guns is a gross overstep of the uh, of, of, of the ATF's powers. Now, Utah is the 10th circuit, but also this was breaking news last week. By this point, everyone's heard about it. There was a similar stay in the D.C. circuit where the Firearms Policy Coalition uh, filed suit and they were granted a stay. And so all members of this organization, and this is where I get a bit confused because in some cases they say that the Firearms Policy Coalition filed suit, then they're talking about members of the Firearms Policy Foundation. I don't know which is the parent of what, but apparently if you were a member of FPC, FPF, at the time, then you were covered by the stay and you didn't have to turn in or destroy your bump stocks. I don't know if, you know, if you join now, if you're still covered by that. But what's notable, really what is most notable, is that we have two separate circuits. I mean, okay, Utah, Utah's very conservative, Utah's very pro-gun, not a big surprise there. But the D.C. circuit, very liberal. I mean, D.C. had to be bludgeoned into compliance with the Second Amendment vis-a-vis Heller. Mm-hmm. And, and so now, so, so first of all, the fact that the D.C. circuit is agreeing with this day is momentous. But now you've got two separate circuits that are saying, hold up, this is bogus. I really think that this will make it to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And hopefully what everybody says, the Supreme Court is weighted to the side of the Second Amendment. We, we shall see. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to hold my breath. But yeah, that's a, it's a good direction to go because, as I said before, this is something that is very specifically not a machine gun per the written law, and now it is being treated as a machine gun. I'm, I'm not a bump stock guy. I'm not really a full auto guy. But hey, guess what? This is just bad rulings should not be allowed to go on because again if they're going to rule that bump stocks are machine guns who's to say that they're not going to rule that arm braces are now short barreled rifles or that the non shotgun shotguns are now suddenly short barreled shotguns it's just let's let's not let that Campbell's nose get under the tent or green tip ammunition is armor piercing yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The moment we let a regulatory agency act like it can pass laws, that's where the problems start. Because the bureaucrats are not answerable to the voters. And, you know, if if we have someone in Congress who tries to pass the law to, to uh, rewrite the NFA to say, you know, plus bump stocks too, all right, that's annoying. But at least they're going about it the right way. And the politicians who do this can be influenced by their voters because every politician wants to be reelected. But the faceless bureaucrats at the ATF, they don't care because we don't know who they are and they can get away with this stuff. And so, yeah, this is this is really, really bad. Now, if it goes to Congress, well, I'm not really sure what will happen. All right. Let's not mess around. Uh, I, I don't have faith in Congress to be pro-Second Amendment. I think that if 
the bump stock ban gets kicked out as being unconstitutional, I, I really think that there will be legislation drafted to amend NFA to include bump stocks. This is bad, but I think it will have one positive effect, and that is the people who have theirs, they will be grandfathered in. They won't have to give up their property without recompense, and that's good. And there is possibly something else good that could come from this if people have a little bit of foresight and this is me over here holding my breath, uh, someone might decide to throw open the machine gun registry. If, if bump stocks are machine guns, and all of a sudden we have, oh, look, uh, all of these are, are machine guns now, well, you know, <laughs> first of all, th there will be a, an increase in quote-unquote machine guns, but I, I think it would be nice if they declared sort of a machine gun amnesty. Mm-hmm. And so then all the people who had the bump stocks but had them buried in their backyards could register them if they wanted to. Uh, I bet we would have more than a few people who suddenly discovered they had some auto sears and they would register that. It, it's not a – well, it's not ideal because at least to me, ideal is the complete – because to me, ideal is the complete repeal of the NFA, but that's not going to happen. So this is acceptable. Well, I could also argue that, again, as I say in my audio fisks, and I'll be uh, – I, 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 one of the things I was recording was the uh, the press conference for the uh, New Zealand uh, sweeping gun ban that's uh, going on right there. And I, I talk about this very often is why I am a Second Amendment supporter and openly talking about Second Amendment and talk about defensive shootings and things like that is because hunting is great. Sporting is great. Going out to the range and having a good time is awesome. I love all those things. Those are not going to hold up when somebody is knocking at your door calling for a ban. And bump stocks have that in spades. Is They are a goofy range toy. I don't know anybody who has a practical use for their bump stock. Oh, I've, you know, you don't see... Ian and Carl in there. I mean, I've seen Ian and Carl doing two gun where, where Ian's running around with his show show machine gun. Uh, it, but yet I've not, haven't seen them doing a bump stock and showing the practical uses of a bump stock. And then on top of that, we've got the Las Vegas uh, attack where it was used for detriment. Was it worse? Did it make it more deadly? I have my doubts. Um, maybe, maybe not, but I'm not going to speculate. I'm not going to talk about that. But again, it's got a big old black eye and it's a goofy range toy. And so with that, that's going to be a tough road to hoe to say, oh, no, we need to keep this because reasons. Mm. But the idea is once banning it comes up in Congress as a bill, that's why we don't have a, a machine gun registry right now. That's why we can't, you know, you can't get you an auto seer for your AR because the registry has been closed. It was closed because of the Hughes Amendment. The Hughes Amendment was attached to the Firearms Owners Protection Act. And yeah, so a pro-gun bill was going through Congress and somebody slapped a couple of, 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 of anti-gun stuff onto it. That happens. And the same thing, it can go the other way around. You know, in Massachusetts, we recently had a bill that was designed to make it so that we have our 
lowest permit, the permit that just is for rifles and shotguns, is actually a shall issue. That will be if you don't have a disqualifying characteristic in your uh, in your background check, you get the permit. And they wanted to add the crappy discretion to it. And the Gun Owners Action League of Massachusetts went in and tacked a whole bunch of other stuff onto it. So, yes, now all of our permits are May issue, and that sucks. But, hey, guess what? Now you can own pepper spray without a firearms permit. Uh, Gone is the weird Class B permit that was just awful. There's a whole bunch of really good stuff that came out of it. And so there is always hope that if an anti-gun comes through, there's always hope for shenanigans. And and now for the breaking news of the day, and this is where I'm going to admit some ignorance. I don't fully understand what's going on because Californicated is a hot mess when it comes to gun laws. But I have heard that a California judge, and I, and I don't know in which court this is, I probably really should. Where do you know what, is he a circuit court judge? Is he something else? Uh, U.S. District D- Judge Roger Benitez. Yeah, so. Is it district and then circuit? Is that how that works? I, I, I don't know. Like I said, Aaron and I were talking about before we started recording the show. All right, what do you know about this? And we went, uh, well, but it's good news. And so we can, let's throw some rank speculation. We'll let you discuss that. We have friends in the show that might know better. So we, we can, we can give a recap on it next week, but let's, let's just give the basic beats of it right now. Okay. So the, the very basic beats, um, in 2000, California passed the law saying you can't have any, or you can't buy magazines over 10 rounds if you had them they were grandfathered but you couldn't import any new ones uh then in 2016 the the voters approved a law removing that provision which means okay well the grandfathering tough luck you gotta sell it dispose of it turn it in it's not contraband yes and the california branch of the nra sued and Judge Benitez sided with the arguments, and so he blocked the law from taking effect. And this was in 2017. And I don't know what's happened since then, uh, but apparently something very recent happened, and he may have expanded his ruling. I don't know. This is me just being derp. But something important happened, and he... I guess he called the entire law into question and he issued a stay or something like that. And apparently it threw the gates wide open because Californians are buying standard capacity and extended capacity magazines by the truckload. Uh, I don't know the numbers, but uh, like Palmetto State Armory, Brownells, they are sold out. They're having to do emergency orders. They are scouring their warehouses for any leftover magazines. People who are not Californian are getting their orders placed to the back of the line because they want to fulfill as many California orders as possible before uh, it's halted by some other ruling. And I don't know how many, but I, I think I saw a number where there were like, you know, tens of millions of of magazines and 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 this this might be rank speculation someone could be hyperbolic i don't know but but just a huge huge amount of 
in excess of, of 10 round magazines being bought and sent to California. And when you have big companies that are, uh, you know, fulfilling these orders and saying, yes, yes, we'll get to you as soon as we can. It seems to me that they have a large amount of confidence in the fact that this stay will be upheld. The law will be overturned, whatever the technical term is. So, uh, there's a large chunk of the American corporate infrastructure network. I'm not sure what I'm looking for here, but, but they are more or less putting their money on the fact that this law will not last, and that is fantastic. It's sort of the gunny equivalent of the Berlin airlift in a lot of ways. Yep. Well, uh, I, I hope, again, I, I wish I understood more on what this law did because and, and what the ruling specifically said. Uh, again, we need to look into this, but again, we're we're just dipping our toes into this pool. And, and again, Facebook group, we, we will be looking to you. Help us out. And uh, but I'm, I'm hoping maybe there'll be some trickle down here in Massachusetts, because let me tell you, not being able to buy. Uh, new magazines. Again, I got an M&P uh, 45 be, and I've got an M&P 9 compact because, and that's the first gen, because I am not going to buy an M&P 9 because I'm not going to put a 10 round magazine into a Magwell designed to hold 17. That's just ridiculous. I'm not going to get this big, long magazine that's just mostly empty space. And so the idea and again, there's a reason why there are so many of these large capacity magazines. They save lives. I mean, there's a reference to a woman who I think she was repelling home invaders and she grabbed the the, the gun in the nightstand and had the, the ammo that was in it. And if it had not been high capacity, she might not have won that fight. And that's one of the things I talk about in handgun radio is those like absolutely ridiculous, like the 33 round Glock magazines and those just huge stick magazines. A lot of people laugh at them because they're like, oh man, yeah, it just hangs way out the bottom and it looks super goofy. But that's a really, really good idea if you've got a pistol for a nightstand gun because you're more or less in your jammies or in the buff if you sleep that way. But as a general rule, I know, I know people who sleep in the nude. I know people who sleep in jammies of various kinds. I don't know anybody that sleeps in a gun belt or attack vest. So the idea that you're going to, to get up, grab the gun and suddenly have do perform multiple reloads in your home in the middle of the night is is not very plausible because you're going to have what's on the gun. And so this is a way to have more that's on the gun. Well, I will tell you that while the 33-round stick magazine is kind of silly on a pistol, it works great in a pistol-caliber carbine. Yes, it like does. Like my 7000. <laughs> it's not silly anymore. Mm-mm. And again, it's not it's it's not it's not silly in a pistol when you're realizing that nope, that's what I've got on me. Yeah, the gun feels a little weird in your hand because it gets real bottom heavy. But <laughs> again, like yeah, putting a putting putting a drum in your AR, yeah, it changes the balance of a little bit. But now you got a lot of ammo. So <laughs> uh, I have a fifty round uh, Glock drum. Well, it's not actually made by Glock, but it's Glock compatible, mm-hmm. and I have shot my Glock 26 with that, which is, you know, the little subcompact. And it, it's fun, but weird. 
Uh, on the other hand, just the, the weight of all of those rounds really makes the pistol a lot more stable. It, <laughs> it looks funky, but it, it's very nice to shoot, actually. I've got to imagine a full, the fully loaded mag is both larger and weighs more than, than the, entire, uh, the entire gun that it's feeding. I'm not sure. I could find out if you want. <laughs> you, you, you could, but, but it's close enough that we have to look it up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm going to say that they are probably within a pound of each other. Mm-hmm. Now we pivot from the good news to the weird audio fisk. Warning. This fisk contains saccharin, which has been determined to cause a severe reaction in some listeners. Symptoms of saccharin exposure include excessive eye rolling, irritability, and frequent uncontrolled cursing. So last week, I started a fisk of Dr. Joseph Saccharin of Johns Hopkins University. While Dr. Saccharin works for Johns Hopkins, which is largely funded by Michael Bloomberg, and openly used as a mouthpiece for his anti-gun agenda, Dr. Saccharin is testifying at this House hearing on background checks on behalf of the Brady campaign. We must develop a broad, multidisciplinary, multi-strategy system approach that is supported by good science and research. Well, last week, I outlined some good science and research that showed what crap the anti-gun agenda is. But let's dive in. Every day in cities like Baltimore, Philadelphia, Chicago, we have young black men that are killed, and their stories often go untold. Interesting that all those cities are anti-gun and constantly pushing for more gun restrictions. Also, I'm not going to dive into the race angle, but he is correct. Black males under the age of 30 are disproportionately the victims of gun homicide. I will also note the bulk of gun deaths in America are suicide, which is disproportionately white males over the age of 40. Still, if it wasn't enough that places like Chicago and Baltimore with insane amounts of gun laws but have massive homicide numbers, I don't think bringing up the race of the victims does you any favor. It isn't the white majority of this country shooting the black minority. The perpetrators of black homicide are almost always black themselves. So if race is a factor in all of this, and the proposed legislation is colorblind, that does seem to be another indicator that these proposed laws won't work. And I would argue, with support of the data in the show notes, that it would make it worse. We develop solutions like seatbelts and airbags and safer roads. And since then, we have seen fatalities per mile driven fall by 85%. But you aren't proposing safer guns, which I would also argue negates the utility of a gun. You are for banning them entirely. I don't think gun owners would be as amiable to your gun agenda as they were to auto safety standards. Never mind the numbers that we're really talking about are suicides and homicides, not accidents. Cars still kill far more people accidentally every year than guns kill intentionally. And firearm accidents can be approximated to zero. The numbers are so low. This is the essence of the public health approach. A multi-sector, research-informed, evidence-based program and policies. Evidence-based policy, now without evidence. A product of Michael Bloomberg Incorporated. Makers of Stop and Frisk. Congressman Mike Thompson and Peter King introduced the Bipartisan Background Check Expansion Act, H.R. 8, on the anniversary of former Congresswoman Gabby Gifford's near-fatal injury. This is more blood dancing, as the person who shot Congresswoman Giffords and killed six people that day bought his gun legally and passed a background check. I would also note that just like the killer in Parkland, that monster was a frequent flyer in the local police cruisers for domestic violence and drug calls. 
But in all these encounters with law enforcement, the police did not press charges. Why do we need new laws when the existing laws aren't being used? The bill expands Brady background checks to cover all private farm sales, including those at gun shows or over the Internet. Which aren't actually an issue, as the young black men in anti-gun cities are not buying their firearms at gun shows or through Internet ads. They're acquired through other criminals or family and friends who likely know their transfer is already a crime. But also, this bill would criminalize the use of firearms at workplaces like ranches, farms, and other places where staff need to control the pest population or defend themselves from dangerous animals, and sports shooting outside of federally recognized shooting ranges. Since the Brady Law was implemented in 1994, it has blocked more than 3 million unlawful purchases. And of those 3 million, many of them got their guns anyway as they appealed the denial. And virtually none of these people saw any interaction with law enforcement for lying on their 4473 and attempting to buy a firearm illegally. This is much like the red flag laws that are also supported by the anti-gun lobby. Somebody is deemed too dangerous to own a firearm. The red flag laws then take the guns they currently own, and the dangerous person is left alone, unsupervised. With the background check denials, the dangerous person is attempting to get a gun, so the sale is blocked. And we let that person so dangerous they can't buy a gun of any kind just go about their merry way. How much sense does that make? Other common sense solutions that decrease injury and death include farm injury prevention research. Again, we've done it. Turns out these proposals increase violent crime. And here you are testifying in favor of it and using the phrase common sense. Implementation of extreme risk protection orders. Oh, the red flag laws I just talked about as being a colossally bad idea, not to mention a direct violation of a person's Fifth Amendment rights, as well as the Second, makes you wonder how many more civil rights these ghouls would go after if we let them. Education on safe storage to end family fire. As in the education crusade spearheaded by the NRA and the National Shooting Sports Foundation? He mentions this, but really, the anti-gun groups have been very gun-shy when it comes to actual firearm safety training. Because to do any firearms training at all, you first must be admitting that gun ownership is something we must actually accept in society. Investing in safe technology. As in smart gun technology, which has been a talking point for decades with virtually no progress. And the technology is so good that every time a bill comes up, law enforcement officers are always exempted from having required technology. We have both the opportunity and the responsibility to comprehensively address gun violence as a true public health crisis that it is. Again, he's using the public health talking point to imply that firearms are some sort of pathogen and gun death is a disease. Because Michael Bloomberg would rather the CDC fund his research than he pay for it himself. And like last week, I have the CDC study commissioned by executive order of President Obama in the show notes, and I've been referencing it for why gun control laws are bad for public health. But that study was on the level. Without the Dickey Amendment, the anti-gun lobby could again commission government studies to cook data and create anti-gun propaganda. The America I'm fighting for is one where parents no longer have to fear the phone call that my parents received, that the Parkland parents received, and literally hundreds of others in communities across this country are receiving every single day. Except the numbers show that implementing gun control laws would cause more people to die and more phone calls. I'll also note that Dr. Sacrin was shot on school property. He also references Parkland. Interesting that along with Maryland and Chicago, his horror stories all seem to happen in places with more gun control, not less. 
There's no one solution to this complex health problem, which is why we must come together as a country to build consensus and support and develop a research-informed, data-driven approach so that we can help you, as our policymakers, ensure the public safety of Americans all across this great nation. Thank you. Note this man, who is a victim of gun violence and is a lobbyist for an anti-gun corporation, was allowed to speak at this hearing. Yet Steve Scalise, who is also a victim of gun violence and is simply a representative of the people in his congressional district, was blocked from testifying because he is even more in favor of the Second Amendment than ever before. You speak of coming together while dividing. You speak of data-driven solutions while ignoring the data. And you speak of public safety while proposing laws that have failed every time they've been implemented. Dr. Sacron, you and your corporate anti-gun lies are a prime example why I do these audio fisks. Those are your anti-gun talking points and a few rebuttals to combat them. Now, I know that you said this in your segment, or maybe you said it last week. It, it's been a week since I listened to this, but I thought it was interesting that this gentleman was brought in not just because he is a doctor of some sort, but because he is a uh, a victim of a uh, of a firearm shooting, mm-hmm. of a firearm shooting. That sounds so awful, but you know what I mean. Uh, and and somehow that gives him authority. But on the other hand, Steve Scalise, who has also been shot, was prevented from testifying, and so that's such an obvious bad faith move. Yep. Ugh. And again, it's I'm sorry he he was shot, but then to go and say, hey, let's work hard to make the rest of the world like the place where I was shot. That just is so counterintuitive. Now we have Oddball bringing us a segment on knife clips. Um, weird. I, I think you mean knife magazines. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it great when you're in a Second Amendment group and you're just one of those who can actually say, get the argument of clips versus magazines? We we had to go there. I think there was one time someone was talking about a grand and he mentioned clips and someone corrected him and someone else corrected him. It was like, no, actually, the grand uses an N-block clip. So he was correct. Actually, the, the story was this was Wally from York Arms. And uh, yeah, he just said inadvertently, he said he the first time he was looking at a grand, he had pushed the the, uh, the clip in and uh, and then looked down and saw a button and he go- and goes, what's this button? Is this the bolt release? And pushed it. And he said, and the magazine flew up and hit me in the face. And I said, actually, it's a clip. How <laughs> <laughs> many times you get to do that? That's not, not very often. Welcome to Oddball's Corner Pocket. This week, as I was trying to figure out what to talk about, I was flipping through my RSS feed and saw someone discussing tip-up versus tip-down carry. I realized that this was one of those things that most people probably never really think about, so let's talk about how to carry your knife. When it comes to fixed-blade knives, you're usually constrained by the sheath and design of the knife. I have a few examples where they're small enough to slip into a pocket, and others that are designed to be worn around the neck, but most fixed blades are larger and the sheath is designed to be carried on your belt. While there are some variations, this is pretty straightforward. 
When I am carrying a fixed blade, I personally tend to carry it on my offhand side. It's easy to draw with my right hand, and it doesn't interfere with my gun on my strong side. Folders have a surprisingly large number of choices. There's also people out there with surprisingly strong opinions on the matter. From a gun geek point of view, think of hammer versus striker fired, four o'clock carry versus appendix carry, etc. Of course, the old school way to carry a pocket knife is to just throw it in your pocket. Surprisingly, no one thought to put a pocket clip on a knife until Spyderco came out with their first knife in 1981. Until that point, if you were carrying a knife, it was loose in your pocket, a pouch, or a sheath. This has obvious drawbacks. If you're like me, you have other things in your pockets, and you have to dig around trying to find the knife among your pen, lighter, loose change, etc. As it's loose in your pocket, that also means that there's no telling what orientation the knife is going to be in when you do find it. This is clearly subpar. I'm a firm believer that a knife should be easy and quick to access, whether it's because I need to cut some cheesecake or because I need to stab someone. Maybe because they have my cheesecake. I want the knife to be in my hand almost instantly. That said, there are some reasons to carry this way. It might be as simple as you liking the look and feel of a classic folder, whether it be a Swiss Army knife, case trapper, or classic buck lock back. If you're not carrying it with defensive purposes in mind and don't mind the extra time for deployment, this is perfectly acceptable. There are also possible legal reasons. There are some jurisdictions where, quote, openly carrying a knife can cause you to get into legal trouble. Oftentimes, openly carrying is defined as the police noticed that you had a knife. This includes having a pocket clip showing on the outside of your pocket. While not legal, this also includes being in social or work settings where people might be upset if they saw it. Obviously, while I'm not going to advocate walking down the street looking like Danny Trejo from Machete, I disagree with the idea of needing to go to that level of hiding a pocket knife. But if that's the law, then that's the law. The carry methods that people argue about the most is tip up versus tip down. Both of these methods use a pocket clip. The difference is, as the name implies, whether the tip of the blade is pointing up or pointing down. Tip down, or having the blade pointing down and the pivot on top, is the way the original Spyderco C01 Workman was designed to be carried. I feel that this is a very safe way to carry the knife. With the pivot on top, any shock from walking, running, jumping, etc. tends to cause the knife to want to close. As you can imagine, having a knife open on you while inside your pocket can be the cause of some excitement. It does mean that you might have to practice a bit on rotating the knife in your hand to deploy it, but it starts off in the same orientation every time. I've found that with some practice, this transition can be very quick and natural. After years of carrying knives in this configuration, I've found that I can quickly and easily deploy the knife without thinking about it. The tip-up carry folks tend to cite it being more natural and faster. If you have the point of the knife pointing up and the pivot point down in your pocket and you grab the knife with the same side hand, 
you do naturally grab the knife in a grip similar to the way most people use a knife. This method of carry is even more useful if your knife has an Emerson Wave feature on it. In fact, it must be carried in this fashion if you want the cutout to snag your pocket and deploy the knife as you draw it. The downside with this type of carry is that it can be unsafe. Way back in the 1990s, I used to carry a Schrade clip hanger. It was one of the earliest mass production liner locks, and it had an interesting feature where instead of it having a pocket clip, it actually came with a clip for your belt loop on a quick release tether. Oh, and it was designed to be carried tip up. I carried it like this for a while, but discovered that it had some issues. The detent that held the blade in the closed position was not particularly strong. Couple this with the fact that the knife had a nasty tendency of sliding out of my pocket and hang on to the tether attached to the belt loop of my pants, and this caused for a dangerous situation. The shock of it bouncing around would cause the blade to open, and there were several times that I found a naked blade swinging around and knocking up against the side of my leg. Fortunately, I was never seriously cut, but the opportunity was definitely there. While I feel that the chances of that happening to a knife securely in my pocket is significantly lower, it is there. For this reason, many people refer to tip-up knives as being either right-hand or left-hand carry, depending on which side of the knife the clip is on. In a right-hand configuration, the knife is set up in a way that, if you have the knife resting against the back edge of your right front pocket, the spine of the blade will be pressed against the edge of the pocket. This ensures that the knife will not open. Obviously, left-hand carry is the opposite. As my example displayed, this can be important if your knife doesn't have a strong bias to being closed due to a ball detent, spring, or other mechanism. This is enough of a concern that Benchmade includes a note with their knives stating that the knife is set up to be carried on the right-hand side and that you need to swap the pocket clip if you plan on carrying it in your left pocket. If you're wondering how I like to carry and what I suggest, well, I'm going to answer with my usual answer of, it depends. In general, if it's in my left pocket, I like tip down. If it's in my right pocket, I tend to like tip up. That's just what I'm used to and have decided what works for me. As for what you should do, try them all and come up with what feels best for you. One of the things I like about the Spyderco Delica and Endura is that you can mount the pocket clip in all four of the common configurations, whether that be tip up or down and both on the left and right hand sides. Many knives will not have holes drilled to move the clip to another position or only allow flipping it from right to left. What can I say? I like options. I think that's enough of that for the day. If you want to read more of my work, I write at gunscarstech.com. If you have any thoughts, questions, or suggestions for future segments, I can be reached at oddball at gunscarstech.com. Or give me a shout on the ACP Facebook page. Until next time, have a good one. So, Aaron, how do, how do you carry knives? Well, it depends on where I carry them. Usually, if I'm carrying uh, a knife these days, it's a fixed blade knife. It's my K-Bar TDI, so it's point down in its sheath. But 
in terms of a folding knife, well, if I have it in my front pocket, I will have it point down. Because, mm -hmm. I don't know, that's just the way it goes. But I don't do this anymore, but when I was in my 20s, I would carry a buck knife in my back pocket right next to my wallet. Mm -hmm. And just because of the ergonomics, or, or I should say the way I like to pull the knife out, I would actually carry that point up. Because really, what it comes down to is I like to have the spine of the blade aligned with my thumb. And so if it's in the front pocket, well, I'm going to you know, reach that way with the thumb up. But if I'm reaching into my back pocket, I end up reaching thumb down. Mm -hmm. So it really depends on where I have the knife. How do you carry? I carry with the uh, with tip up. I, uh, I used to be a whatever knife sang to me in the morning. I'd walk past my, my pile of knives and whichever one talked to me, it would go in. So I would carry tip up, tip down, all sorts of different stuff. But recently I've switched over almost all the time. I'm carrying a, uh, a CRKT Karahas, which is set up right now. I don't know if it's reversible or not because that's the way it came and it's perfect, is set up for a uh, tip up carry. And I really overall prefer that, especially with the flipper style, because you reach in, you grab it, and it is very similar to grabbing a fixed blade knife with the tip down because you pull it out. And then when you deploy the knife, you've essentially got it in your cutting grip. And I like that. But uh, there is absolutely some truth to be said about the uh, some reasons to not go for it because I did have a knife. I believe I was carrying it in a pair of shorts. So in normally I carry, if I'm wearing a pair of jeans, I carry it in that little, uh, I guess it's supposed to be a watch fob uh, pocket, but they now call it the, the change pocket when you often see it in jean catalogs. Uh, but that is the perfect size for sticking uh, sticking my knives, and so I'll 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 throw my knife into there, and so it's out of the way. It's got its own little dedicated pocket, and uh, it's easy to get to. Uh, but I when I'm wearing a pair of shorts that don't have the change pocket, yeah, they're just clipped into the corner of my pocket. And there was one time I can't remember if it was dirt got into it or jammed or all that, but the knife didn't close all the way and when i put it into my pocket and so that tip up was sticking right out and i ended up poking myself in the finger uh as i reached into my pocket to grab my knife or i might have been reaching in to grab something else either way blood was drawn and uh the knife got taken apart and cleaned to to make it so that it functioned properly again but that's the only time that's ever happened to me how badly did you cut yourself? Not bad. It was really my kind of like a diabetic finger prick. It was it bled because it's a it was a fingertip prick, but uh, it I was not lacerated. It didn't require a band aid. I put some pressure on it, and it, it was all done. But you, I bet you had to wash your pants after that. I sure did. I sure did. Nah, maybe I didn't. I can't remember if the if most of the blood was in the pocket lining, and who cares about those? That can be as filthy as you need it. Nobody sees it. David continues his series on real-life horror stories involving gun repairs. This time, he invokes the dread name of the Ruger Mark III. Hi, and welcome to Gun Lovers and Other Strangers. Today, Tales from the Armorer's Bench, Part the Second. Continuing with AR stories... A customer brought in an AR to have the gas block replaced with a low-profile version and a free float forend installed. This gas block was not pinned, but held in place with hex head set screws. 
After the issues of the PressFit gas blocks, I was happy to see it as this system is much easier to deal with overall. Except this one wasn't. I couldn't get the set screws to move at all. I started with a regular hex wrench, then moved up to a long-handled hex wrench. Finally, I even attempted a breaker bar. Nothing moved. I stopped this avenue out of concern that I would strip the heads out of the hex screws. Later that week, I brought in a small propane torch and carefully heated the set screws and then tried loosening them again. I did this several times, heating the screws longer at each attempt. Finally, the screws came loose. Do you know what I found in the bottom of each threaded hole? Small traces of red Loctite. To understand why this aggravated me so much, here's a basic primer on the different grades of Loctite. Purple is the low-strength version, requiring only 62 inch-pounds to break the bond. This is followed by green, which is the penetrating formula, and usually requires slightly more force at 90 inch-pounds to break free. Blue is medium-strength, and the type most commonly encountered. This compound ranges from 115 to 180 inch-pounds of force required to break the bond. Red is the strongest of the thread lockers you're likely to encounter. It requires around 230 inch-pounds to move, or a temperature of over 450 degrees Fahrenheit to break down the chemical bond. Only use this variant if the parts are unlikely to be ever moved again. There are very few places on a firearm where Loctite is recommended. While gas block screws may be one of them, never use anything past blue. Doing otherwise will just cause you or someone else pain in the future. Everyone who works on guns for other people has one or more stories of bag guns. You know what I mean. A customer brings in a bag containing gun parts that they can't get back together. I've had several of these situations recently, and most of them involve Ruger 22 rimfire semi-automatic pistols, both the 2245 and the Marks 1, 2, and 3 standard pistols. These are great handguns that usually require very little maintenance other than cleaning. However, in order to clean them, they need to be disassembled. Disassembly is not an issue. They take down fairly quickly. The challenge begins when they need to go back together. The biggest problem is the hammer strut. If you're not careful, this part can get caught behind the sear spring stop pin or by the mainspring housing. This can tie up the gun to a greater or lesser degree. Adding to this challenge, the pistol also needs to be held in different positions at several points during reassembly to make sure the hammer strut is in the right place. Reassembly also requires that the hammer be lowered, which requires that you pull the trigger, which in the Mark III means you have to insert the magazine, then pull the trigger, then remove the magazine again, and all of this needs to be done without tilting the pistol too far in the wrong direction. Finally, the receiver tube can be readily removed from the frame for cleaning or replacement. If the matching holes in the frame and the receiver aren't lined up just right, then the bolt stop pin won't pass through and again can tie up the gun. Now, once you've done this a few times, it's not that difficult. However, if you only take it down once or twice a year, that contextual memory is perishable. While I can't quite do it with my eyes closed, I've put enough of these pistols back together that it's pretty straightforward. On one occasion, a customer insisted it was magic when I took his bag of parts back to my bench and returned a couple of minutes later with a functional pistol. It wasn't magic. It was the third incident with that model in just over a week. By the way, the new Mark IV takes care of this issue with a much simpler takedown and reassembly procedure. 
While this means I won't have as many chances to be seen as a big damn hero, I won't miss the customer's frustration at all. Shiny. Sometimes these bad guns come from unexpected sources. One of the sales clerks approached me at work the other day in embarrassment. He had detail-stripped a revolver and couldn't get it back together and wondered if I would take a look at it for him. Of course I would. It's an Armscore M122 rimfire, which is basically a copy of the Colt Diamondback. Except the Armscore lacks the fit and finish expected of Colt revolvers from the mid-60s through the mid-80s. I haven't had a chance to take a close look at this one yet, so I don't know how this will work out. Obviously, I hope I can get it back together for my coworker. Then there are the odd ones that turn out to be known issues that simply haven't come to your attention previously. In one, a customer dropped off a Glock that was locking open after each shot. This was obviously very concerning, especially since he'd just had a trigger job done. I'll admit, I'm not as well-versed in Glock pistols as I'd like to be at this time. After a little research, I found out that slide lock tension is generated through a small spring held in the correct position by the locking block pin. If that spring leg winds up below the locking block pin, the slide lock is pushed up instead of pulled down and locks back every time the trigger is pulled. As is frequently the case, once I had the correct information, resolution of the issue only took a few minutes. In a similar vein, a customer came in with his new HKVP9. His issue was disassembly related. Apparently, there's a small plastic clamp on the right side of the disassembly lever that helps keep things aligned. Turns out, this part is very easy to lose. However, if you don't know it even exists, you can't tell it's missing. I had heard something about this issue, which simplified my research. I suggested the customer contact HK for a replacement part. He did, they shipped in the part, and he popped it into place. All's well that ends well. That about wraps up this segment. If you have any questions for me or suggestions for future segments, please post them on the Assorted Calibers podcast Facebook page, and Aaron or Weird will make sure I get them. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. I'm David, and this is Gun Lovers and Other Strangers. Oh, the Ruger Mark series. Oh, I mean... When I had my first guns, like is one of those, okay, I, I bought a 1911, so here I am taking a 45 to the range every time I go to the range. And that gets expensive quickly. That gets, ex- yeah, even, even back then when 45 was relatively cheap, it was still expensive. And so, yeah, I definitely wanted a 22. And that is the top of everybody's list on 22s. What do I get? Oh, get a Ruger. It was the Mark II with that. It was the Mark III might have just come out, but, uh, it was the the, yeah, the Ruger Mark series. Go have a look at that. And uh, yeah, and I looked up how it came apart and I went, yeah, no. And so instead I spent about twice as much of what those were going for on a 22 revolver and I have not regretted it at all. I love my Smith & Wesson 617. I have a Ruger Bearcat. Mm. Is it single action only when you can only fire it by thumbing yes. the hammer back? Yeah, that's, a yes. sing, that's, a, that's a single yeah. action, yeah. Yeah, that's that's mine. I inherited it from my mom. I believe it was my mom's first gun that she bought back in the 50s or something. And not only is it uh, a neat little gun, but that is it's so beautiful to train newbie shooters on mm-hmm. because well, <laughs> as you know, the 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 22 hardly anything to it. And the fact that it is the single action only means it's very very difficult for them to shoot more than one round. You're not going to get the panicked 
you know, bang, 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 bang. And so I, I really love it for training purposes. Now, I have never shot a uh, Ruger Series 22 before, but I have heard all sorts of stories. I, I've heard that they are great guns to shoot, but there is a fair amount of witchcraft involved in disassembling them because otherwise, I don't know if you're going to lose parts or if you just can't figure out how to get them back together. Yeah, I think it's there's certain points like where you're, David described it really well on the, you know, don't do this, do that. And it either just won't go together or you can jam stuff up and bad mojo happens. And once you know what you're doing, everyone I know who has one is like, yeah, it's really not that big a deal. Like once you figure it out. But of course, let's not bury the lead here. Ruger finally, after how many years and, and Bill Ruger finally slipping this mortal coil. They've solved it with the Ruger Mark IV. Now the the Ruger twenty two comes apart like an FAL. It's awesome. And how does FAL come apart? Uh, FAL essentially has a lever on the side of the receiver, and you push it, and it's essentially like the lever on a break action shotgun. You push the button, and the whole gun hinges open like it's a Browning over under. Uh, especially actually you can make it when you take the gun apart it actually looks like a br uh, browning over under once you take the gas tube out because there's literally two holes that you see light through uh when you uh when when you take it when you take it uh, when you pop it open but yeah you just pop it open and then the gun just hinges downward and then you can just reach in and grab the bolt carrier and just pull it on out and away you go it's it's almost too easy. <laughs> also, I'm very glad David talks about the guy that comes in with a gun in a shoebox and was the, I bought this gun from here. Can you please put it back together? Because I was almost that guy when I came home with my first 1911. Uh, especially this was the days before YouTube. And I took it apart. It took a long time for me to do it, but I did it. And then I started putting it back together. And I could not get the slide stop back in. I essentially thought that how it came out, it looked like it just pushed straight out. So I was trying to push it straight in and it would not go in. Well, why didn't you just uh, queue up uh, Scent of a Woman and watch Al Pacino put the 1911 together because he was blind? Surely he knows how to do it. Which is exactly what I did. Aaron, Aaron heard the show last week. <laughs> And, I was here. Yeah, yeah. This is this is. Why didn't I go to YouTube and look it up? Because there's a thousand and one videos of taking apart 1911s and Ruger Mark series. That's the only reason why I know how it's done because I watch it on YouTube. And that this was before YouTube. YouTube was not yet a thing. So I literally took out my copy of Scent of a Woman because I'm like, oh, there's that whole scene where Al Pacino takes apart the the 1911. And I quickly realized that, no, under no circumstances, Al Pacino take apart a 1911. He handles a 1911. He handles 1911 parts. And then there's movie trickery and the gun goes from disassembled to assembled with, 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 lots, of, uh, with lots of break cuts. So, yeah, nope. I'm just like, oh, come on. And then eventually. Hollywood lied to us? Yes. Holly <laughs> there, was, there was Hollywood trickery specifically on putting a 1911 back together all right all you glock glock users you can go ahead right in <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah i ended up finally just like sitting there and just staring at the part 
and finally notice that there's an angled surface on the slide stop pin and realize that, oh, that can probably slide up underneath it. And when I put it together, I ended up doing an exaggerated movement and put the idiot scratch on my 1911. So my uh, one of my 1911s has the idiot scratch and I'm proud of it because it came across it on the, I figured this out and I did not figure this out perfectly. And there it is. So for people who don't know, I mean, is the idiot scratch just the first scratch you get on your firearm, like the first scratch you get on your new car, or is there more to it than that? I believe there's multiple idiot scratches for various models. This actually might be a fun discussion topic in the uh, in the Facebook group as well, if there's other idiot scratches. But for a 1911, that is a perfect radius swing uh, from the trigger guard up to the, uh, the little uh, plunger tube. Uh, that holds the the uh, the the, sa- the safety and the slide stop uh, in, uh, and it, that is just from literally putting it in and then dragging the exposed nub of the slide stop across the frame before it goes home into 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 the recess. And uh, yeah, what you're supposed to do is just bring it up to it and then push it in and slide it in. And my other 1911 does not have that such a scratch. But yeah, for for that 1911, yeah, when you see one of those, you go, oh yeah, someone who didn't know what they were doing put this gun back together. Like, so you scratched through the bluing, and you've got bare metal there. Uh, no, it's stainless steel, so it's just a scratch. Oh, okay. But but if it was blued, yes. L- luckily, my uh, my uh, carbon steel gun, or actually the frame is scandium. The scandium frame gun does not have uh, have such such a scratch. Uh, not that I think Scandium would really corrode much. And two, I don't know what the coating uh, Smith & Wesson uses on it, but the amount of times that this gun has gone in and out of a leather holster and it has very, very minimal holster wear, this stuff is pretty tough stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to test it to find out. I, I know what I'm doing now. Thanks to each and every one of our listeners, and a very special thanks to all the supporters on Patreon. To become a Patreon patron, go to patreon.com slash podcast to sign up. Patrons get an early release of the podcast, plus bonus content like our hilarious blooper reels and the ACP film tracks and the ACP mag dump. You can get more from me at my blog, which is weirdworld.com. That's W-E-E-R-D world.com. And hear me weekly on Handgun Radio on the Firearms Radio Network. At this point, do people not know how to spell your blog? It's just do it every time. I know. It's fun to say. Okay. And, and I copy and paste the outro. Well, let's be honest. <laughs> uh, you can get more from me at my nerd blog, lurkingrhythmically.blogspot.com. My prepping blog, bluecollarprepping.blogspot.com. And, of course, my two charities, blazingsword.org and pinkpistols.org. And, of course... My social networking hub is Facebook. Just search for Aaron Paulette and you'll find me. Thanks to Nate Spencer for our music. Well, he didn't record me last week. And this week, I'm looking over at my recorder and it's not counting down. <laughs> so our screw-ups are assorted and so is our podcast. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>